Welcome to Heartland Podcast. The talk you are about to hear is a live conversation with world-renowned Slovenian philosopher Slavo Sisek that took place at Heartland in June 2018. He's interviewed by Danish historian Adam Holm, trying to answer the question, what is happening with sex in our world? Before I give him the word, spare your applause. When we communists will take over, you will be obliged to give long applause to the leader. So spare that energy for people's power. Go on. Right. Uh, welcome, all of you. I know it's really hot in here. Uh, just before we kick off, I've actually, and I'm not joking you, I've been asked to ask you a question from the festival committee. How many in here would confess to being frequent users of pornographic material on a regular basis. That's very few. I'm just, I've been asked to ask that question. We got a lot of moralists and very few masturbators. Anyway, let's see if we can change that. Um, the thing is, uh, before we kick off, Slavoj will do uh, an introduction, uh, introduction which will last, what, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, and then 15, 20, 25, somewhere 35. there. <laughs> we have 30 minutes, uh, 50 minutes at our disposal. No. Sorry? We have 50 minutes all in all. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. And, and I have one or two questions if I get the chance. Okay, it's you, Slavoj. It's Slavoj time. Ah, okay, thank you. I'm very grateful to be here, and I just hope, I hope the microphones work. And I hope that uh, technology will work. That's my true anxiety. Okay, let me begin. Uh, I will try to be as simple and short as possible. In a hotel in Skopje, the capital of the Republic of Macedonia, where I recently stayed, my companion, my wife, inquired if smoking is permitted in our room. And the answer she got from the receptionist was unique. Of course, it's not permitted. It's prohibited by the law, but you have ashtrays in the room, so this is not a problem. This contradiction between prohibition and permission was openly assumed and thereby treated as inexistent. Uh, say the message was It's prohibited, and here it is how you do it. And then we had got a further surprise. When we entered the room, this is what awaited us in the room. An ashtray with the sign of the prohibition to smoke. Please show the first image. Yes, you see, I'm not lying, literally. Uh, maybe. This incident provides the best metaphor for our ideological predicament. A dissonance is openly admitted and for that reason treated as irrelevant. Recall, for example, the debates on torture in the United States. Was the stance of American authorities not something like Exactly the same paradox. Torture is prohibited, and here is how you do a waterboarding. 
One has to avoid a crucial misunderstanding here. It is not that prior to our time, we took the rules and prohibitions seriously, while today we violate them. Let's compare the sexual lives of two United States presidents, Kennedy and Trump. As we all know, John Kennedy had numerous affairs, but the press and TV ignored them, while Trump's every old and new step in this direction is followed by the media. Not to mention that Trump also speaks publicly in an obscene way that we cannot even imagine Kennedy doing it. So the gap that separates the dignified public space from its obscene underside is now disappearing with ambiguous consequences. Inconsistencies and violations of public rules are openly accepted or at least ignored, but simultaneously we are all becoming openly aware of them, of this inconsistency. Like, you can be inconsistent, nobody cares. How did this shift affect sexuality? We are becoming massively aware of the extent of coercion and exploitation in sexual relations, Me Too movement, and so on. However, we should bear in mind also the no less massive fact that Millions of people on a daily basis flirt, play the game of seduction with the clear aim to get a partner for sex. The result of modern Western culture is that both sexes are expected to play an active role in this game. When women dress provocatively to attract male gays, when they objectivize themselves to seduce them, they don't do it offering themselves as passive objects. They are active agents of their own objectivization, manipulating men, playing ambiguous games, including the full right, of course, to step out of the game at any moment. This active role of women is their freedom, which borders all kinds of fundamentalists, from Muslims, who recently prohibited women touching and playing with bananas and other fruit, <laughs> which resembles penis, to our own ordinary male chauvinists who explode in violence against a woman who, so they claim, first provokes them and then rejects their advances. What I want to say here is that feminine sexual liberation is not just a Puritan withdrawal from being objectivized, but the right to actively play with self-objectivization, offering yourself and withdrawing at will. So, my point is that all this debate about, oh, you are objectivizing women, I find it very problematic. What's wrong about a woman in the sense of trying to be attractive to men, objectivizing herself, if this is done by her own free will with the right to withdraw and so on and so on. I will try to give you later an extreme example which demonstrates how the true oppression of women precisely prevents them to objectivize themselves. So yes, sex is traversed by power games, violent obscenities and so on. 
But the difficult thing to admit is that sexuality, power, and violence are much more intimately intertwined than we may expect it. So that also elements of what is considered brutality can be sexualized, libidinally invested. After all, sadism and masochism are forms of sexual activity. Political correctness tries to resolve this deadlock by imposing explicit rules and by contractualizing sex. I think this solution is a perverse solution. So what is missed in perversion? No, no, I don't have time since I am, by you, brutally <laughs> limited. But, you know, uh, here I try to be a good feminist. Namely, I remember I'm old enough in the great 60s sexual revolution, it was popular to blame hysterics as ambiguous. A hysteric subject is just provoking a master and doesn't really want to get rid of the master while perverts go to the end. They enact their freedom. Here, it was the hidden anti-feminism of that age. Perverts are, as a rule, male. Hysterics are female. And I think the big liberating lesson from psychoanalysis is that there is nothing liberating in perversion. Every power edifice needs a secret perversion to sustain it. And the truly creative stance is the hysterical stance of provoking, asking questions, who am I, what, why am I, what I want. So the first rule is, if you want to be truly a feminist, legitimize, rehabilitate uh, hysteria. <laughs> Let me go on. The indirectness, what perversion misses is the indirectness in the very heart of sexuality. Now I will come slowly to my second example. Uh, a short clip, maybe you know it, from the English working class drama, Brust Off, where the hero walks home a pretty young woman and when they reach the entrance to her flat, this is what happens. The second, uh, the clip, please, brushed off. Do you want to come up for a coffee? I don't drink coffee. I haven't got any. You see, this is, sorry, stop. This is for me the zero level of sexuality. Nothing happened, just apparently a, a totally asexual exchange. But the message, come up and let's make love, is delivered, not only delivered out of modesty, but this very meaningless exchange sexualizes the debate. Because if she were just to say, come out and come up and fuck my brain out of me, whatever, it would be much less sexual than this totally asexual, uh, totally asexual exchange. And now comes, now, in politically correct times, I should add a trigger warning to you here. Now comes my most problematic example. I claim that sexuality is never direct. This indirectness, a necessity of the tours of a third element, reaches all the way down. Recall let, uh, the 
what I try to isolate as the paradigmatic hardcore sexual position and shot in straight heterosexual pornography. It's a shot where a woman is lying on her back with her legs spread wide backwards. The camera is in front showing man's genitalia, his penis penetrating her vagina, and man's face is as a rule invisible. He is reduced to an instrument. But what we see in the background before her, between, sorry, her thighs, is her face in the thrall of orgasmic enjoyment. For obvious reasons, there will be no clip here, no? <laughs> uh, this reflexivity is crucial. If we were just to see the close-up of penetration, the scene would soon turn boring, disgusting, medical. One has to add woman's enthralled gaze. Her, of course, fake, subjective reaction to what is going on. So, what is happening here? First, it's the man who is really treated as an instrument. You usually don't even see the man's face. His duty is just bam bam to do it. So, I claim I, as a viewer of this movie, I don't identify with the man doing it. You get it totally wrong if you think, oh, my pleasure comes from me imagining me to be... No. I identify with my gaze, searching for a proof of her subjective subjectivity in the thrall of enjoyment. That's why it's not only, let's see, sexual organs. You must see her face with... I cannot imitate them, all, all the sounds <laughs> and so on. Why is this crucial? Because uh, woman is here subjectivized. Man is objectivized in the scene. But woman is subjectivized in a very brutal, violent way. It's a fake subjectivization where she has to enact her intense enjoyment uh, and so on and so on. So I think this is much more violent than objectivization. Again, in hardcore pornography, the woman is not objectivized. He is, in a coercive, humiliating way, subjectivized. And if you know a little bit about, uh, a little bit about sadism and masochism and so on, <laughs> a practitioner of sadism does not simply objectivize his victim. What he is looking for is precisely to her, if it's a woman, uh, humiliation, disgust, pain. Her subjective reaction to her terrifying predicament is part of the game. Now, this mediated character of sexuality means that I am never alone with my partner. Our direct bodily interaction is always mediated by a fantasy. You are never alone, even if you are alone with your partner. Let me give you my last visual example. A couple of decades ago, a British publicity spot for a beer uh, was shown, and I will describe it so that you will get it. Its first part stages the well-known fairy tale anecdote. A girl walks along a stream, sees a frog, uh, uh, takes it gently into her lap, 
kisses the frog and, of course, the ugly frog miraculously changes into a beautiful young man. However, the story in this publicity slot is not over yet. The young man casts a covetous glance at the girl, draws her towards him, kisses her, and she turns into a bottle of beer, which then <laughs> went, please, let's show this last one. Now, what's the underlying idea? For the woman, the point is that the man, the, the point is that the frog, when kissed, uh, turns into a beautiful man. Although, incidentally, my winning friends are telling me it's rather the opposite in real life. You think you have a beautiful man, you kiss him, and you are becoming aware how his mouth smells and so on, that you are really kissing a frog. But that's another point. For the man, the goal is to reduce the woman to a partial object, which is the cause of his desire. So, the message of this publicity is a beautiful one. We have either a woman with a frog or a man with a bottle of beer. What we can never obtain is the true couple, which is the truth of the beautiful woman and man. It's, of course, a frog embracing a bottle of beer. That's the truth. So, but let's go on. This phantasmatic dimension is reduced in our drug culture. Are we aware to what extent chemistry in its scientific version, is becoming part of our daily lives. Large aspects of our lives are characterized by the management of our emotions by drugs, from everyday use of sleeping pills and antidepressants to hard narcotics. Uh, for example, you are tired, you take some pills. You are overexcited, you take another type of pills. You don't have sexual desires, you take pills, and so on and so on. Uh, the stakes of these chemical interventions are double and contradictory. Did you notice how we, when we are overexcited, we first use drugs to withdraw from too much excitement, and then when we are withdrawn, out of touch with reality, we again need, need the drugs to excite us. The, the problem here is that the excitement is usually social excitement, which drugs help us to exclude, to pacify, but the excitement to which drugs stimulate us is, of course, private, intimate excitement, not political excitement, let's say, of collective engagement. This paradigm, I think, defines the coordinates of today's consumerism, which provides a clear case of the distinction elaborated by Jacques Lacan between plaisir, 
pleasure and jouissance, intense enjoyment. On the one hand, we have the consumerist calculation of pleasures, well protected from all kinds of harassment and other threats to our health. On the other hand, we have the drug addicts or smokers or whatever bent of self-destruction. So the basic strategy of our consumerism is to deprive, to de deprive enjoyment of its excessive dimension. Enjoyment is tolerated, solicited even, but on condition that it is healthy, that it doesn't threaten our psychic or biological stability. Chocolate, yes, but fat-free. Coca-Cola, yes, but diet. Coffee, coffee, yes, but without caffeine. Beer, yes, but without alcohol. Mayonnaise, yes, but without cholesterol. And at the end, of course, sex, yes, but safe sex. So I would like to ask here, who is the other who poses the threat to our balanced pleasures? It is, I think, simply what in our Judeo-Christian tradition we called the neighbor. A neighbor, by definition, harasses. And harassment is another of those words which I think are very ambiguous. At its most elementary, harassment means, this refers to brutal facts of rape, beating, and other modes of violence, which of course should be ruthlessly fought, condemned. However, in the predominant use of this term today, harassment means also something else. Fear of the over-proximity of another real human being. The other is okay insofar as his presence is not too intrusive. Insofar as the other is not really other. Tolerance coincides here with its opposite. My duty is to be tolerant towards others, but what this effectively means is that I should not get too close to them, not to intrude too much into their space. So no wonder one of the big modern inventions is uh, uh, the so-called restraining order. When somebody annoys you, you can go to a court and he is not allowed to approach you, I don't know, more than 100 yards and so on. Of course, I agree with this, when the other is really harassing you. But I think this is nonetheless a sad sign of our predicament, where, again, the other is basically considered as a threat. He shouldn't be allowed to come too close to us. And it's incredible how here the two extremes meet. In male, in our politically correct discourse, <coughs> whatever a man does, can be read as potentially a harassment. I speak in a lively, sometimes vulgar way. I was, you can believe me, already accused of verbal rape, visual rape, and so on and so on. So it's this fear of my activity. But isn't this strangely mirrored in what, when they were in power in Afghanistan, Taliban, they imposed this rule, they prohibited women in the cities where there is a hard floor of stones, whatever, women were prohibited to wear metal heels. 
Because they claimed even if a woman is totally covered, these clicks that you as a woman make when you walk can excite men too much. <laughs> I see here, nonetheless, how, uh, how extreme meat. Slavo, is... Slavo, can I interrupt you for a minute? Yes. Because I'm listening very patiently and I'm really observing what you say. But when you talk about the other, as you just did now. About? You... The other. Uh, the other, yes. Yeah. Are you thinking specifically about Islam? Is that what no. you're trying to say? No, the fun with, the, with the fundamentalists is the same. That's why I think, again, we should show how our fundamentalists also, what they fear is the other who is active, who actively imposes itself, and so on and so on. What I'm afraid is of this discourse where implicitly the other, usually the feminine other, but in the case of Me Too, the male other is perceived as a potential threat. But give me another five minutes, I will finish. Then you have... You have eight minutes. <laughs> eight. Oh, my God. What happened to you that you are so generous? Okay. Now, let's go quickly on. What I wanted to say is that this is why the ultimate politically correct sex is cyber, cyber sex, where precisely you can be sure that nobody is... Uh, that nobody is harassed. Another solution that we have is, and it's a very sad tendency, is that even in our sexuality, real partner is more and more replaced by gadgets. Not only dildo, plastic penis for women, but also something they call, it's a terrible term, stamina training unit. <laughs> it's a fat candle-like, artificial vagina, and I saw it. It's a wonderful instrument. You put on the top different forms of the opening. You can get uh, anus, mouth, or vagina. Then you can regulate how much it squeezes you, how fast, and so on and so on. And again, you play your game. Nobody is harassed. Nobody is hurt, and so on and so on. So now, uh, how, what to do with romance in this time? I will now repeat an old story of mine because I have a solution. Let's say I'm dating a woman and we want both to be totally politically correct. So we meet, I bring my stamina training unit, she brings her <laughs> dildo, and how does our date look? We put both of them, let's say you are a woman or me here, we put them on the table, we turn both instruments on, we push her dildo into my stamina training unit, and we are doing it out there. Our, the, the machines are buzzing. We don't have really to do anything, you know, like, yeah, yeah. and that's freedom. Because enjoyment is today a, a superego pressure. You have to enjoy. But the machines are doing it for us, and we can have a nice intellectual conversation. While some, fucking. Yeah. In some sense, you know. <laughs> Let me just... Uh, and uh, so, uh, again, when people... You, you see my second tendency here, critical. When people claim we live in hedonist times and so on. No, we don't. We live in uh, totally controlled hedonism, where we live under the double injunction. On the one hand, yes, enjoy, on the other hand, you pay the price for this enjoyment with more and more of, uh, more and more of oppressive regulations and so on and so on. And simply, regulations, I think, they don't 
function in sex. So let me now really briefly conclude, really briefly, just three final points. The first one that you will not like is that many of those who fight for emancipation of sexuality still portray male patriarchy as the big enemy. I don't think, I think that this is the case. I think that you see how Me Too and transgender movements, how they explode. All, and did you notice this? All big American executives of big companies, Elon Musk, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, immediately totally supported transgender and so on. I'm not saying that we shouldn't support them. I'm just saying that today, our basic ideological model it's no longer that we are solicited to be patriarchal subjects dominating women and then we resist against this. No. Today's ideological injunction, typical of late capitalism, is something like, be truly, is what I ironically call uh, hedonist Western Buddhism. Be true to yourself, don't get too many attached to specific objects, just freely float, reconstruct yourself all the time, and so on and so on. So I don't simply see an emancipatory dimension of this. Why, why not? Because I think it perfectly fits uh, late capitalist consumerism. This, this idea that is behind it, this infinite plasticity, you know, you can reinvent yourself, sex is not natural, of course it's not natural, I totally... But, 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 there is a multiplicity of sexual positions, sexual identities, isn't that the greatest sign of liberation? I mean, you're truly emancipated. So, ah, now you brought me to the next point. I, ah. No, it's not, first, liberation, why liberation? Look, people were never... Isn't the sign that this doesn't work, that at the same time, the price we pay is that never was so much impotence and frigidity as today. And just don't tell me, because secretly we are still controlled by uh, patriarchy or what. But, but Slavoj, Slavoj, Slavo, sorry. Yeah, yeah, please, yeah, yeah. But, you know, people have freed themselves of this straight, straight jacket of binary positions, you know, male, female. They are all sorts of, you know, transcending genders. There is some sort of liberation in that. Because, I mean, it's not like when you and I grew up back in the 50s and 60s, yeah, yeah. 70s, there were yeah. like two positions, two gender positions. Now there's a multiplicity. That's liberty. No. No? no. Why? No. Why? It is the same, in the same sense as if you say capitalist consumer is liberty. Of course it's liberty with regard to binary position and so Freedom on. of choice, you might call it. Oh my God, don't go into this direction, because I say that <laughs> freedom of choice is the we, we, main we name this. Of, today's, of today's oppression. <laughs> you know how it works? This is the big postmodern formula. How do they justify diminishing healthcare, social security? They say in the old oppressive days it was obligatory, organized by state and so on, healthcare. Now you are free to choose. You either pay for healthcare, you, you go to a holiday, you are free to choose. And at all levels, in my country and in America, I hope you are more happy here, that's how they justify precarious work. 
You think it's oppressive, you live all the time in anxiety, I don't know if I have a permanent job or not, but look at it as a liberation. Every two months I can, I can choose my, uh, my, make a free choice and so on and so on. I, of course I am for free choice in the sense of, my God, I don't want anybody to order me what to do. But the, uh, the true dimension of freedom, I think, is not free choice as such, but the concrete space of freedoms that you are allowed to. And here, problems for me in what you mentioned begin. Of course, I am for the freedom of choice and so on. But the problem I find, the first one is this one. And I know dozens of examples. In my next book, there will be a long chapter of this. How this freedom of choice, especially with transgender people, Many of them, not all of them. Some of them are my best friends and they are wonderful theoretically, and I will tell you why concretely, <laughs> but with majority, how this freedom of choice immediately turns into a new desire for extreme classification. Like, do you know that some board of whatever protection of freedoms in the city of New York uh, proposed a list of, I think, 32 or 33 identities. Mm. You have the right to pick up. You know what's for me the illusion here? Uh, it's not as simple as this that the traditional sex, gender, first, I think it's a difference between sex and gender, but that's another thing, are simply transfixed. I think that uh, every, if you look at it closely, and that's the lesson of psychoanalysis, every gender identity is in itself questioning, insecure, and so on, and so on. And uh, this is where I think this basic insight of some of the transgender people, I cannot find my identity in the simple binary masculine-feminine. Okay, I agree. But it's utopian, wrong, dangerous illusion to think that if we expand the list enough, then, oh my God, I'm a lesbian butch. Look, that's what I am now. You will never be satisfied. That's why, you know where I agree with some very intelligent LGBT people, where many idiots make fun of them. Where, you know when they call their position LGBTQ+. We can read this plus empirically as, okay, maybe there are other identities that we didn't yet discover, but I think this is a bad reading. In my reading, it's much more beautiful, I think, Hegelian, philosophical, what if I can be a plus directly? Uh -huh. Plus in the sense of I don't know what I am and so on. And this brings me back to, to feminine hysteria and so on and so on. And I think that there is something hysterical in our basic sexual identity. You never know strictly what you are. I think that uh, sexual identity is something much more in the intermediate, ambiguous... Are, 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 you, are you not comfortable in your own sexuality? Of course I'm not. That's why I'm a sexual being. Maybe stupid animals. You know who is comfortable? I will tell you. Perverts are comfortable. The, the difference between hysteric character and the pervert is that perverts, that's why it's almost impossible to analyze them, because to go to psychoanalysis, you must have some problems, some doubts. Perverts never doubt. They know it. Hysterics 
ask questions. And I think that there can be a different theory of sexuality where your sexual identity is not defined by firm features. Men do this, women do that but a different form of doubt of instability. I don't, I'm afraid that we don't have time to go into this now, because it would have meant uh, hours of it. But uh, again, what I'm trying to say is that this sexual multiplicity, wonderful, is not all. What is behind is not some firm identity, but it's uh, confusion, instability, doubt, and so on. That's the, that's the primordial fact of sexuality, that you don't know what you are. Even if you are a man, you can be a man only with appropriating some feminine features and vice versa and but, so but, on. But you know, Slava, I know one of your colleagues, Peter Singer, you know, the utilitarian philosopher. Yeah, but says, uh, uh, wait a minute, he's my colleague in a formal sense, you know. Okay. Otherwise, when, when we people take power, he will get a first-class one-way ticket to Gulag also. But let's go on, okay. okay. Uh, then maybe I, maybe I shouldn't quote him then, but the thing is, Peter Singer, who's an Australian-American philosopher, uh, you know, he's very much into animal rights. He, he's saying that in terms of our transgressing our sexuality, we haven't come far enough because right now we are transgender, transsexual, but we should also be trans-species. So if you have a cat, if you have a dog, why not marry it? I mean, you, th that, that's the development. This will be the direction, but you know what happened to me when I pointed out this, that the next step will be animality. Yeah. I was accused, I was almost physically lynched once in California. I was accused of, of absurdly attributing bestiality to transgender people and so on. I mean, it's uh, okay. Why not? But again, I think that we should be here much more precise. What is love? What is sex? What does it mean to relate to another being, a sexed being, and so on and so on? And I, I think that uh, I agree with this. Ah, another problem that I see here. Okay, we now enter this tremendous topic, and I agree with you, it's incredibly important, of post-humanism. Like, aren't we, and I think effectively, it's not bluff. Something new is emerging. And the main thread that I see is not that Cambridge Analytica bullshit. I mean, we are controlled and so on. Machines are stupid. I don't worry about that. What I worry about is, I hope we agree here, uh, mm -hmm. this direct uh, wiring linking to computers of our brain. On the one hand, we become almost divine. I think about something, computer reads my mind, does it. By thinking, I can do things. But it goes also the other way around. I can be steered, directly, controlled. We lose what till now was the basic feature of our humanity, which is my inner, I am here, reality is out there. Now, I am not a, a technophobic. I'm not saying we will all turn into robots and so on. I just don't buy this stupid Ray Kurzweil uh, optimism, oh, wonderful new world. Something radically new will emerge which will have nothing to do with what we today understand as divine immortality and so on. If you permit me one minute, yeah, then I finish. Uh, already with the topic of immortality, something so interesting is happening today. 
we are more and more dis discovering what I call the other obscene immortality. It's not this noble Christian immortality, oh, I have an eternal soul. It's, you know, look, where do you find this immortality? Look at Marquis de Sade novels. When Justine is tortured, she's terribly tortured. In the next scene, she is there as beautiful as ever. Then look at Tom and Jerry cartoons. You know, like, in one scene, the cat or the mouse is sliced into pieces, run over by a steamroller. In the next scene, it is there, normal as ever. Isn't this also our universe of video games? Where, you know, I screw it up, I die, no problem, I start again. This kind of obscene immortality that we are entering. And nobody knows, I don't know, what this means. But I can take it very seriously that something new will emerge. I talked too much because just to tell you what I wanted to do. <laughs> I just wanted to make uh, two, three, two, three uh, Marxist points. My first point, very briefly, is that uh, political correctness and so on is not as idiots like Jordan Peterson think. The last effect of cultural Marxism is on the contrary. I cannot explain it now. The last... I, on purpose, I use these brutal Marxist terms, the last bourgeois defense against new revolutionary left, I claim. I think that, I'm not kidding here, the situation, the crisis, ecological and so on, will give a push to some new form of left. If this will not happen, then all the left motives will be appropriated by Donald Trump and so on. That's another point. So, uh, my problem with PC is not it's too extreme. It's not extreme enough. Second thing, the only way to really fight for women's rights, it's not to exist endlessly as if we all men are rapists and so on and so on. It's to see how we men also are not the happy rape rapists in this situation. Uh, do you know that almost half of our men are impotent and so on and so on? There has to be an alliance here. Insofar as women play just this game, you know, this primordial scene of Me Too. Men want to rape us or uh, enforce sex and so on and so on. It avoids all the crucial problems. First, they focus on these one-night scenes when man is, uh, uh, man is violent and so on. But my God, what about millions of ordinary women who are married? They are not directly terrorized, but deeply unhappy, this more subtle form of coercion. Of course, it's not popular to talk about it and so on. I think we, un with this I will conclude, we underestimate to what ex the class dimension. Where do you find it? Today, I read in Guardian a wonderful text by, I think her name is Joan Williams. Uh, left-wing feminist, you know this latest scandal, Roseanne Barr, this yeah, girl who was thrown out for... But you know what was she? Nobody mentions this. She was the only talk show which was clearly identified as white working class. And nobody even... Of course she should be, have been fired. But this, even blacks found their place in mass media, or those stupid very patronizing uh, black comedies and so on. Working class is the one, working class white, working class lower, is the one which can be endlessly humiliated because if you protest and ask about, about my identity, you are immediately white supremacist and so on and so on. We will have to change our basic 
coordinates. Yeah, it's a shock for you, but I stopped. Yeah, yeah. Samuel. Yeah. So, <laughs> we still have seven minutes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, can we, we, we still have, have seven minutes. That, that's brilliant. Uh, ask me other questions. Because, you know, <laughs> we as good Stalinists, we decide that that we already speak for the people as good Stalinists. You know, that was Who the one reason. questions we know better than you. This is Stalinist perversion. We know better than you what is good for you, so shut up and listen to us, please, yeah? I don't mind being reduced to an extra, that's perfect. Now, Slavoj... No, uh, we are not extra, with, with, they are extra. Yeah. <laughs> with seven minutes to go, one thing that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to contemplate, you're critical of LGBT, you're critical of the Me Too movement. But they totally support their goals. Right. That, that was the thing I was aiming at, because... Not only their goals, but also okay. all the demand, most of their strategy... Well, well, then, then just give us an overview. This year, we are marking the 50th anniversary of the 68 revolution, yeah. of the rebellion. And there, the revolution, yeah. there, there is a lot of first celebration. People are saying, oh, that was the period, that was the era in which we yeah, yeah. liberated ourselves sexually. Yeah. Uh, uh, you can see that that's a picture from Denmark. That's 1969, yeah. 1970, something like yeah. that. It, it, you know, it, it smells of innocence to some degree. And I think you're saying that the sexual emancipation that we're seeing nowadays with the LGBT yeah, yeah. movement, with the transgender yeah. movement, etc., it, it, it's gone too far. It's become no, too... It doesn't go too far enough. Okay, then, I, then I'm confused. Mm. Where should it go further? Further, of course, not further in this extreme puritanism and so on. Right. But further, first, in covering really all forms of feminine suffering and so on, and point... Two, in linking forms of abuse of Mimin and Serra to general economic crisis and so on and so on. Let me give you an example. Mm. You give this as a model. Okay, try to do a woman, to do a woman what is shown on this image. In the United States, you will be instantly arrested. That says it all. Another example I give you. I remember when I was young. You know that in the early 70s, French media published a big appeal for sex with young children. And they really meant young children, like five, six years old. Daniel Cohn-Bendit was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not just him. There was a big, uh, uh, sorry, manifesto signed by practically all. Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Deleuze, Gattari, Michel Foucault, Lévi-Strauss, demanding free sex between adults and children, up from five, six, and so on, uh, uh, especially parents with their young boys, girls, and try to do something similar today. I'm not saying 68 was right. I'm saying I'm more on the side of Me Too and so on today. Right. Because they, in 68, liberated sex, but in a way which, first, open up the space of new oppressions, and I can give you later, if you have time, examples, but point two, especially, <coughs> which fitted perfect, it was maybe uh, modern capitalism, maybe the greatest ideological triumph of modern era is how all the key demands of 68 were integrated into the system. Sexual liberation, yes, then you get this. Se although, again, there are also great results, I admit it. Like, after 68, you simply cannot any longer 
treat women homosexual in a certain brutal way. That's a mega result, I don't underestimate it. But let's go on, education. We were protesting alienated bureaucratic universities. You get now what? This permanent, quick education to be more fit for your business, and all normal people are craving for all useless bureaucratic universities. In workplace, the big negative model was uh, factory work, where you are just one element in the chain. Those who still have a permanent job in a factory are almost the lucky ones today. Today, at least in my country, 70% of the people under 30 already work in precarious jobs, radical uncertainty, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, in this sense, for me, 68 was ambiguous. Very good books were written about how the very memory of 68 is falsified. Today, we associate 68 with sexual revolution. Sorry, but these were big demonstrations where at a certain point, as you probably know, uh, Charles de Gaulle went in panic to Germany mm. to consult the army. Students were joining workers and so on. Of course, it was all a utopia. But it was nonetheless also this dimension, which is totally almost obliterated today, and people think about 60, just drug culture and so on. I think drug culture and sexual, this is more the 70s. In the 70s already, immediately afterwards, the depolitization of the, depolitization of the 60s began. But you have more questions. Let's squeeze them, really. Oh, yeah, we have uh, one minute and 50 seconds. Uh, you're a popular dictator yeah, uh, <laughs> who can proclaim that we yeah, yeah. step out of the metaphysics we, 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 we take a little more. time. And we take a little more time. Uh, I, I asked you, uh, when I interrupted you, about Islam. And my reason for asking that, and we're straying a bit away from sexuality, of course, yes. but when we look at what is happening in Europe, uh, in our continent, we do see that, uh, given the multiculturalism, yes. that we are somehow affected by the, uh, um, you could say, the presence of Islam. We yes. see that in, in foods, in moral yes. norms. Yes. Do you think, looking a bit ahead, that the presence of Islam will affect our understanding of sexuality? Not directly, but now I will tell you something because of which many leftists even attack me and so on. I, I don't think that all fear of Islam is just a reflection of our Islamophobia or whatever. I believe in that the conflict between different ethnic religious way, ways of life, it's a very serious one, mm. and you cannot simply resolve it through, oh, we should just tolerate each other. Okay, an exaggerated, vulgar example. And I was told that it happened many thousands of times per year in Germany, that a lady from an immigrant Muslim family want to have a German boyfriend, live German secular life, and then since her parents don't allow it, she escapes to police, and then they have special asylums where you are given... Okay, then of course, their own, her own parents protest, you are thereby violating our way of life. And aren't they in a way totally right? To, uh, a way of life is not just, as some benevolent leftists try to convince us, our food, our songs. A way of life is especially how 
relations between sexes are regulated, and relations of authority. This is why each way of life is never just its own way of life, but in, always includes a universal dimension of how do you relate to other ways of life. Exactly. So uh, already at this level, what when people told me, no, these are all pseudo problems, I tell them, okay, you are a chief of a local police station, uh, a Muslim girl, or our Christian fundamentalist, I don't care girls, comes to you, they, my parents are terrorizing me. What will you do? Exactly. If you protect her, they will say, and in a way they have the right to say, sorry, you are brutally intervening in our way of life. So I don't believe that a way of life should be the ultimate limit of intolerance. Right, and my reason for asking that question is to go... It's because, as, we, as I said before, as we're marking the 50th anniversary of 68, we're also marking same-sex marriage, uh, abortion, for instance, and we're confronted. We saw that in Cologne on New Year's Eve 2015. Yeah. We're confronted somehow around... Uh, the continent with people who come with another idea in terms of, for instance, abortion or same-sex marriage. It's very interesting what you mentioned because I have, uh, so that you will not uh, take me for some uh, anti-Islamist. My God, what more do you want? I support BDS and so on. But my Palestinian friends told me that what we saw in Köln, Cologne, Cologne, is what happens regularly on a market in a Palestinian cities. This is part of their, yes, fuck you, way of life. That, you know, men gather in the evening and it's not a rape. It's like to harass softly women and so on and so on. They simply didn't see this as a problem, they told me, because for them this is part of their way of life. And my answer is, I don't have an easy answer like uh, we should arrest all of them. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be the first step that we recognize it as a problem? There is a problem in coexistence of different ways of life, which is not just an effect of Western imperialist intolerance or whatever. I think that it's the time when our Western tradition, what is good in it, enlightenment, feminine liberation, is under great threat from our own defenders of Europe, right-wing nationalists, and so on, anti-immigrants, to be a little bit proud of what is the best in our Western tradition. Mm. My God, are we aware that even those who criticize Europe for being really imperialist, just analyze, read them closely, all the concepts that they use are co still concepts of Western freedoms, enlightenment, and so on, and so on. I think we should stop with this eternal masochism, which is just inverted racism. You know, in the old days they were saying, uh, white man's burden, it's our burden to rule others. Now we have the politically correct white man's burden for everything that happens. If one Arabs uh, kill others, it must be neocolonialism. We must be guilty for it, and so on and so on. No, we sh the, our greatest contribution to peace coexistent to world is that we give the world, we stick to it, what is the best in our tradition. And, and this brings me to... You see, this is called stupid people falling for my demagogy, but sorry, go <laughs> yeah. In order to do what you're saying, Slavoj, we need some sort of, uh, as George Orwell called it, common decency. Yes. Which is extremely important. Extremely. Uh, uh, you know, and you know who will be... Sorry to interrupt you, but I have a beautiful detail here. 
I think that today, yes, when I was young, in 68, leftists de decried decency as, oh, that's how those in power talk, you know. And we leftists like to, uh, fuck you, whatever, be vulgar as provoking power. Today, with Trump and so on, those in power are vulgar enough. And maybe we, the left, should become people of decency immediately. Let me give you just another beautiful example. When people ask me, are you crazy? Why are you still a Leninist? You know, Lenin's, well, immediately, the guy wants to ask something. Right. Lenin, Lenin's, uh, you know, the Lenin's famous testament, when he proposes, just before his final stroke, to depose Stalin. Read it, it's an incredible document. He doesn't oppose Stalin with wrong political line. It's all decency. Korma Stalin is too rude. He doesn't have good manners enough. It's an extraordinary turn in lately. So I deeply agree with you here. But maybe the guy really wants to say something, gentlemen. In, in which case, you really have to shout, and we're about to close now. Yeah? Yeah, somehow. Or come up here and talk. You can come up here and talk in my microphone if you like. No, you, you need to talk in the oh, microphone said. if you want right. to say something. Please come up here. Because come up here. Already I hear you with difficulty and I doubt if they down there uh, are able to hear you at all. Uh, actually, we're about to finish, so uh, this will be the last question. I'd like to sit next to Slavoj. But I'm not gay, I warn you. I'm also not. <laughs> Then we can safely sit with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but for this we'll be lynch again as homophobic, whatever. I think very short. No, 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 just talk into the mic. Okay. In, in, sen in, this, okay, in this part of Central Europe, we have a discussion about consent these days, especially in Sweden. They have you mean sexual consent or generally between culture? I think these are combined, but uh, they have changed the rules now in the, in the parliament. Uh, what do you think about this? Doesn't it change the uh, paradigm that we change the uh, burden of evidence? What do you mean by consent? Sorry, I really would like to hear the, it. The, the Swedish law says that in the past, okay. if there's a rape, maybe Adam yeah, yeah, yeah. can explain it as a journalist better than I can, but you know the, the background. But uh, if there's a rape situation, sexual rape, yeah. the uh, victim has to prove the evidence that it happened. Yeah. Not the uh, guy who did it. Yeah. And I say guy because it's yeah, 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 women. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so, how do you see that? Does that change the whole paradigm in the future? If I can answer very briefly yeah. to this one. Uh, this is, you see, one of the examples where when uh, Me Too theorists claim no means no, it's not enough. Because there still is a course, yes. A woman can say yes, but it may be a coerced, doesn't really mean it, and so on. And they add usually to it that to make it sure at every step, both of the partners should have the right to withdraw. You know, Slavoj, maybe I made a mistake before. <laughs> uh, you do, but it's too late. Yeah, yeah, but it, it's up. too late, fuck that. Anyway. Uh, no, but I will be really short. We're about to close. I yeah. to close like uh, 10 minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, so many questions, moral questions, ethical questions, yeah. because the headline is called What is Happening with Sexuality? So do you have any sort of conclusion? What is happening 
with sexuality in our time. You said we are moving towards transhumanism, and to be truly sexual, you have to be asexual. You said, uh, but I mean, is there any sort of conclusion that people can? Uh, no, the first take conclusion home? is that a certain deadlock, instability, uh, even immorality in common sense. Let's accept it. Is I mean, a pessimist here, it's immanent to sexuality. The idea that if we both sign contract and we have it perfectly regulated, that will, this will work, it will not work. And let me just go, the proof will be to answer to the gentleman's question. Look, those two rules that I mentioned. But can you even imagine what new space of violence do they open up? Let's say I am a politically correct guy, very shy, and a lady, not now, I'm old, but I don't know how many years ago, wants to have sex with me. So she gives me signals. I don't react to them. So she, what should she do? The rule is, I read somewhere, no means no, so it's not just to say passively yes, but to say actively, enthusiastically yes. You know how humiliating can this be for a woman? What should she do? Jump ahead of me, please fuck me, yes, yes, or what? I mean, it doesn't work like this. Or the other, even worse example, that at any point, both partners should have the right to withdraw. Oh my God, I had friends of both sexes, they are no longer my friends, who told me this is wonderful way to humiliate your partner. Imagine you are in bed with a woman or man, you excite your partner to the utmost, and then you say, sorry, I use my right to withdraw, with a clear tension. This is one of the most humi humiliating experiences. The proof of this is not we should be liberal here. I'm totally for utmost fight every coercion, but I'm saying sexuality is so ambiguous and intricate that no explicit rules, no contract will really work. Slavoj, brilliant. That was some sort of conclusion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 